Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of domestic abuse and child abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In October 1976, 28-year-old Kay Hawkins felt good for the first time in months, maybe even years. It seemed like her partner, 42-year-old Bill Hawkins, had finally turned a corner. He was ready to be the man she knew he was capable of being. The couple were enjoying themselves at an eight-day religious celebration called the Feast of Trumpets and Day of Atonement, put on by the Worldwide Church of God. Kay, Bill, and their children sat down in the sprawling auditorium with the other attendees. Suddenly, the crowd erupted in applause. The church's founder, 84-year-old Herbert W. Armstrong, had made an appearance. He graciously tried to quiet their clapping, but they wouldn't stop. As Kay joined in, she looked over to her husband. She saw awe and admiration on his face, but noticed something else lurking beneath. Envy. Kay realized that her husband wanted that same attention, but she'd never guess that he'd start a cult to get it. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, its leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today, we're exploring a group known as the House of Yahweh. It was formed in Texas in the 1980s by the charming philanderer, cunning businessman, and master manipulator, Bill Hawkins. This week, we'll examine his evolution as a religious figure, his hypocritical actions, and numerous scandals. Next week, we'll see how he used a doomsday message to profit off desperate people, the impact he had all over the world, and the marital crimes he committed. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. A good leader surrounds themselves with people who will call them out when they're wrong. Instead of punishing them for speaking the uncomfortable truth, the leader will accept responsibility, make amends, and do better. But bad leaders can't accept when they're wrong and make up every excuse to avoid responsibility. They're afraid, and they use whatever power they have to shift the blame to other people. And that was ultimately how Bill Hawkins led. But he wasn't always that way. Born with the name Buffalo Bill Hawkins in 1934 to poor sharecroppers in Oklahoma, Bill and his four siblings grew up eating whatever they could hunt, including cats. Bill didn't have much of an education. He dropped out of school in fifth grade. At age 18, in 1952, Bill married a woman named Rosa Bolding. He had an array of jobs, door-to-door Bible salesman, ice maker salesman, and a rockabilly band singer. At some point in the early 1950s, he enrolled at Midwest Bible College in Missouri, but only lasted for two semesters. Although he studied the Bible, he didn't always follow its teachings. In his first year of marriage to Rosa, he reportedly had an affair with another woman named Dina. Rosa moved out, and Bill went to Texas with his mistress. However, they never settled in one place long, because Bill continued searching for new ways to make money. Even through the instability, Dina stayed with Bill, and they eventually had four children. According to Kay Hawkins' book, The House of Yahweh, My Side of the Story, 
Bill also cheated on Dina during these years. Much of what we know about Bill and the House of Yahweh comes from Kay Hawkins' book. As we'll see, Kay was married to Bill for decades and wrote her book after they divorced. But back in 1967, Bill was still with Dina. The couple finally put down roots that year when they moved to a town called Abilene. There, Bill joined the town's police department. Around this time, he also became the owner of a mobile home community called Ready Trailer Park. Those added responsibilities, however, didn't change Bill's behavior. By 1972, 38-year-old Bill had his sights set on one of his new tenants, a single 23-year-old mother of three named Kay Daniel. They bonded in December when he helped her move some heavy objects. He learned that she'd been married twice already, but her first husband died and she'd separated from her second. She'd come to Abilene to work at the Timex offices in town, but had lost her job after returning from maternity leave with her youngest child. As they got to know each other, Bill bragged about running the property, being an officer, and owning his home. Kay immediately grew attracted to his wealth and stability, and the two began dating. Of course, Kay didn't realize that Bill was still in a relationship with Dina and had never officially divorced his first wife, and that he had recently had an affair with one of Kay's ex-co-workers at Timex. Vanessa is going to take over in the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to Dr. Stephanie A. Sarkis, a psychotherapist, some people have what she calls a bottomless pit of need. They can't get enough love from people. Yet instead of trying to fix this, they're always looking for another person to fill their emptiness. Sarkis said these personalities, who she calls gaslighters and narcissists, will lavish the person they want with love, and then cheat on them when that person finally falls for them. Dr. Sarkis said that in these situations, repetitive cheating has nothing to do with who you are, it has everything to do with the cheater's pathology. Gaslighters and narcissists will cheat especially if their personality skews towards being less responsible and having low self-discipline. Unfortunately, in the case of Bill and Kay, Kay didn't realize this pattern at first. The revelation about Bill's past infidelities crushed Kay, but she decided to keep dating him anyway. She saw a promise in Bill and hoped she could help him become a better man. In February 1973, three months after meeting Bill, Kay became pregnant with his child. Not long after, Dina and Bill separated for good, and Kay moved in with her three children. But Bill was hardly a loving father figure. After moving in, Kay saw him change from a charming gentleman to a tyrant. According to a book that Kay would write later, he bossed her around and bullied her kids. At one point, Kay heard Bill screaming at her oldest son, six-year-old Dennis. When she tried intervening, Kay says that Bill spun around and hit her square between the eyes. Bill eventually came to his senses and sobbed, asking for forgiveness. He vowed to never do it again. Kay didn't believe him, but stayed in the relationship anyway. Without him, she didn't have anywhere for her and her kids to go, and she couldn't stand a third failed relationship. Endeavoring to make things work, throughout 1974, she helped Bill grow his trailer park business, and they made a small profit. But all the while, Kay says that Bill continued abusing her and occasionally their young children. Kay felt powerless and empty. She turned to religion to fill the void. In this period of spiritual discovery, Kay read The Prophetic Watchman, a periodical written and produced by Jacob Hawkins, one of Bill's older brothers, who used to go by the name J.G. Hawkins. 
Bill's brother and his family lived in Israel for seven years, which is when he changed his name to Jacob. In those years, he also developed idiosyncratic religious beliefs. He thought that the most important books of the Bible were the first five, which detailed Jewish customs. Jacob only celebrated Jewish holidays, ate a version of a kosher diet, and referred to God as Yahweh. Kay also read The Plain Truth, a newsletter published by the Worldwide Church of God. This group was led by a pastor named Herbert W. Armstrong and preached about the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Those two religious outlets helped Kay feel connected to something outside her oppressive life. She developed a deep desire to become more involved with the two churches. Yet, no matter how strong her faith became, she couldn't escape Bill's abuse. Bill was unsupportive of her newfound faith, and really anything that took the attention away from him. Kay saw this on full display in December 1974, when Bill returned from a hunting trip. As the family sat down for dinner, their 13-month-old daughter started crying. When she didn't stop, Bill slapped her on the leg twice before Kay could grab him. As Kay and Bill argued, Kay realized that Bill hit their daughter because she had commanded the room's focus. Kay saw that Bill needed to be in the spotlight, and nothing, not his child's needs or his wife's religion, could take that away from him. Knowing this, Kay didn't think she'd be able to formally join a church. That was until Jacob Hawkins and his family visited in January 1975. He didn't stay very long because it seemed that he and Bill were at odds. However, he told them he wanted to start a church called the House of Yahweh in Odessa, Texas, two and a half hours west of Abilene. Despite the brothers' tense relationship, Jacob invited Bill and Kay to attend services at the House of Yahweh. Bill and Kay took their children to the church throughout 1975, but things didn't click for Kay. Regardless of her eagerness to learn, she found Jacob's messages and customs strange. By October, Kay and the kids became members of the Worldwide Church of God in Abilene. She felt accepted and looked forward to getting more involved. However, when she mentioned to Bill that she wanted to get baptized, he flew into a rage and hit her. But that act only strengthened Kay's resolve. She'd found community, and nothing could take that from her. Within a month, Bill begrudgingly joined his family at weekly services, perhaps to keep tabs on them. Even though he had a Bible college background, Kay claims that Bill acted like a child throughout sermons. He sat when everyone stood to sing, looked at something else when they read scripture, and tried talking to Kay when the pastor spoke. As usual, Bill needed to be at the center. Maybe one of the church leaders sensed this. They asked Kay to play the piano and Bill to lead the choir. That likely assuaged Bill's needs and made him more enthusiastic about going. In October of 1976, the Hawkins attended an eight-day feast in Big Sandy, Texas, with approximately 10,000 other members of the Worldwide Church of God. Every morning, the community gathered and listened to a different church leader speak. Then, they spent the rest of the day socializing with the other members. Even Bill enjoyed his time, and Kay felt grateful for the break from his tirades. During this feast, the church's founder, Herbert W. Armstrong, made an appearance. The crowd adored him, showering him with applause. Even when Armstrong tried to speak, they kept clapping. Kay glanced over at Bill and saw that he not only admired Armstrong, but envied him. He may not have been fully aware of it, but seeing Armstrong in front of the crowd planted the germ of an idea in his head. If he could lead a church, he could have ceaseless attention. This idea grew in Bill's subconscious after the family returned home and things returned to normal. 
But soon after Bill went back to work as a police officer, he was accused of unethical conduct and had to go on an indefinite leave. He'd been found with beer in his patrol car and then denied it. Full of shame, Bill quit his job. The ordeal made him realize he wanted to start something new, but he didn't establish a church, not yet. Instead, he and Kay built a chicken farm. Things started well, but the initial excitement quickly wore off. It seems that Bill grew bored with the venture and neglected his duties. Consequently, many of the eggs they sold were rotten, and as negative word spread, they had to close shop. Kay witnessed all of these issues play out, but she still couldn't give up on Bill. She'd already spent four years with him, had two children by him, and was committed to making the relationship work. She thought it was time they finally got married. She hoped it would be the thing that finally pushed Bill into becoming a better man. When Kay broached the subject, Bill agreed to get hitched as long as they didn't have the ceremony at the Worldwide Church of God. Being married there may have made him feel subservient, which he couldn't allow. Kay accepted the terms, and the two were wed on August 1, 1977, by a justice of the peace. But after the wedding, Kay's hopes for Bill's improvement never materialized, and life only got worse. Kay soon discovered that without work to occupy his time, Bill would seek something far more destructive. Coming up, Bill leverages his charm to start a following. Hello, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we're the hosts of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. You may know us from the very creepy and excellent podcast Red Handed, but now we've teamed up with Parcast for an unprecedented look at history's most nefarious groups. Some preach extreme religious practices, others warn of impending doom, and then there are those whose endgame is far more diabolical. Every Tuesday on Sinister Societies, we take a peek behind the curtain and discover the most ominous organizations the world may or may not have known. Learn how entrepreneurial sects made fortunes off their brand, how charismatic cult leaders caught the eye of celebrities, and why strange orders of the extraterrestrial or collegiate kind attract the most unlikely of followers. Some groups convene in the shadows, others operate in plain sight, all are absolutely sinister. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify. Now back to the story. By 1977, 43-year-old Bill Hawkins had created a reputation for himself as a charming and cunning individual. He was a liar, a serial cheater, and possessed a deep-seated inferiority complex. As a result, he desperately needed attention and always sought ways to get it for himself. But after he left his jobs as a police officer and chicken farmer, he was adrift. He didn't take care of his house or mobile home business. In an attempt to improve his mental state, his 29-year-old wife, Kay, suggested that he take a local speech class in February 1978. Bill went, and his mood improved considerably. For all his shortcomings, he was a skilled speaker. He did well in the class and regularly came home with awards. As he regained his confidence, though, he also returned to his old ways. He started spending all his free time with a woman in his public speaking class. Kay suspected an affair. When she confronted Bill, he all but confirmed it. He didn't admit to any infidelity, but said it was Kay's fault he'd met the woman because she'd told him to go to the class in the first place. The accusation deeply hurt Kay, but she did her best to forget it. 
there were other matters to worry about. Her refuge, the Worldwide Church of God, was in turmoil. In the late 1970s, the organization's founder, Herbert W. Armstrong, began feuding with his son, Garner Ted Armstrong, who led the church's lucrative television ministry. Herbert eventually excommunicated Garner. The Armstrongs were accused of misusing church donations and of sexual immorality, and it seemed their empire was crumbling. In the midst of this, in Abilene, the church installed a young member named Mark Robinson as a high-up elder to lead the congregation. While Kay worried about the future of her sanctuary, Bill saw the struggle as his chance to seize the power and admiration Herbert Armstrong once had. By early 1979, he had convinced the inexperienced Robinson to let him give short mini-sermons before every service. Although Bill was eloquent, his teachings weren't coherent. Bill didn't care about theological accuracy or growing in his faith. He just loved being on stage. As much as Bill enjoyed it, though, Robinson's time in charge was short-lived. Within a few months, new leadership replaced Robinson with another elder, who had no interest in giving Bill a pulpit. Without the attention from the church, Bill sought it elsewhere. Not long after, he abandoned the Worldwide Church of God and decided to become a leader in his brother's organization, the House of Yahweh. Although the brothers had been at odds for years, Bill was willing to swallow his pride if it meant being front and center again. In October 1980, Jacob appointed Bill as an elder. A week after his ordination, Bill began a sister house of Yahweh Church in his hometown of Abilene, beginning in his very own living room. His first service's turnout only consisted of Kay and their five kids. But that tiny bit of momentum filled Bill and Kay with renewed energy. Bill got the limelight again. They bought a mobile home and set it up in their yard as a makeshift church. The first public service was held in December of 1980. Kay started hoping that maybe her husband had changed for the better. Yet even though things began peacefully, the relationship between Bill and his brother quickly deteriorated again. In February 1981, Bill sent a letter to Jacob. He questioned some of Jacob's rules regarding kosher dietary restrictions. Kay believed that Bill wasn't interested in opening a dialogue. Bill just wanted to rile Jacob up and give himself a reason to deny Jacob's authority. Throughout the year, the brothers sent letters back and forth refuting each other's points. It only ended in September of 1981, when Jacob said they'd reconcile if Bill submitted to his rules. Bill refused. The two officially parted ways and ran separate houses of Yahweh. Once Bill had split with his brother, he lost no time building a new church. Bill purchased a 10-acre property in Abilene. He then hired a crew to build the main auditorium, classrooms, and kitchen. In 1982, with the chapel complete, he attracted a small audience of some interested Abilene residents. Although Bill and Jacob had been at odds, Bill kept plenty of the same teachings and rituals as his older brother, such as Jacob's adopted Jewish customs. The House of Yahweh billed itself as a Messianic Jewish congregation, which means they borrowed some beliefs from Judaism and others from Evangelical Christianity, with a strong emphasis on the end times. During the 48-year-old preacher's first sermon, he said that the men in attendance needed to wear a traditional Jewish head covering called a kippah or yarmulke, Apparently, many of the curious local families were put off by this custom and left. Kay said Bill appeared undeterred. Other religious matters took up his attention. 
During the early months of the church, he studied the name Israel in the Old Testament and realized it translated to having a special connection with God. In March, he changed his name from Bill Hawkins to Israel Hawkins, spelled Y-I-S-R-A-Y-L. He changed the E-L to Y-L because it was the Hebrew name for God and he didn't want to appear blasphemous. And as a bonus, Y-L meant power. From this point further, we'll also refer to Bill as Israel. Israel's name change indicated to him that he had a powerful connection to God. However, he didn't want to abide by Judeo-Christian ethical principles. Rather, he seemed to think that by devoting himself to God, he could use his religious authority to make people follow him like he was God. Almost immediately after Israel changed his name, he found a passage in the book of Isaiah that spoke about two figures named Israel and Jacob. Israel Hawkins read that as a prophecy and said that it referred to him and his brother. He gave a sermon to a small congregation claiming that he and Jacob were two prophets and God would use them to change the world. He wasn't sure what God would have them do, but he was certain they would live to fulfill that purpose. Despite the brothers' strained relationship and Jacob's lack of participation, Israel held firm to the prophecy. To spread his prediction and other teachings, Israel and Kay placed an ad in the tabloid, The National Enquirer. Despite its poor reputation, its readership numbers were high. Soon, thousands of people from all over the country became interested in Israel's House of Yahweh. They requested sermons and other content which presumably mentioned the prophecy about the brothers. Over the next few years, Israel steadily grew his followers and even received nonprofit status for his church. He continued preaching about how he and his brother were chosen ones and also began work on creating his version of scripture. Ever since he realized the last two letters EL referred to God, like in Israel, he wanted every occurrence of those letters changed. So he had his wife and other members go through the Old Testament page by page. On words like angel and Daniel, they'd replace the E with a Y. As unnecessary as that may seem, people were attracted to the alterations. The changes made him appear pious, and his following steadily grew to the low hundreds. These followers were possibly drawn to more than just his speaking ability and magnetism. According to sociologist Brad Christerson, who spoke to the New York Times about similar self-appointed prophets, leaders like Israel gain popularity because, quote, people don't trust institutions, and people think that all mainstream institutions are corrupt. Universities, science, government, the media. They're searching for real sources of truth. Along the same lines, journalist Robert Draper wrote in Texas Monthly that people were drawn to Israel's group because, quote, Yahweh's rules were strict but unambiguous and ultimately peace-loving. The laws made far more sense than did the Christianity espoused by the political right or Sunday school classes. So while the outside secular or mainstream religious world had political agendas and complicated problems, Israel's house appeared free of those matters, and so people flowed in. New followers continued joining the group, even as Israel began preaching about the end times. Whether or not Israel was actually concerned about doomsday is up for debate. He seemed to believe what he was preaching, but he also used the threat of apocalypse as a chance to make more money off his followers. He told them they needed to prepare for Armageddon. 
1986, according to Kay's account, Israel bought wheat, marked up the price, and sold it to his congregation for a profit. He told them they should prepare for the inevitable food shortages. Israel's exploitation only came to light a few months later when a woman in the church contacted the original wheat seller and discovered its real price. She tried sharing the information with everyone in the congregation, but Israel destroyed the woman's reputation and ran her family out of the group. Still, it seemed that after this, Israel dropped his minor scams and instead focused on his thriving ministry. In 1987, he made his message international, traveling to Canada and the Caribbean, likely on the church's dime. According to Kay, during this period, even more people were drawn to the house of Yahweh in Abilene. This is when the church entered what Kay called its golden age. The congregation had feast days, marriages, and other pious celebrations. Each week, Israel or an elder that Israel had appointed gave an uplifting sermon to a maxed-out church of a few hundred attendees. Israel even promoted the virtues of monogamy and urged men to treat their wives with respect. But despite Israel's apparent care for the well-being of his flock, he was just as corrupt as he'd always been, perhaps more so. In the late 1980s, Israel's following got so big that they needed to move on to something bigger than their 10-acre property. Israel saw an opportunity in the summer of 1988 when a young couple approached him for help. They owned 44 acres in Eula, Texas, 20 minutes away from Abilene. However, they were too poor to pay off their mortgage, and the bank was about to repossess the land. In a gesture of generosity, Israel paid their debt to the bank and he ended up owning the land. In June, he signed a contract with the couple which allowed them to pay $400 a month and buy it back. However, by October 1989, they could no longer make the payment and their agreement became void. So the couple got nothing while Israel walked away with their land. Technically, his actions were legal, but still grossly unethical. Ultimately, it was just another one of Israel's swindles, like the wheat business. It proved Israel didn't view his followers as people, but as commodities to enrich himself. By January 1990, 56-year-old Israel began moving his large group from Abilene to Eula. There, while working to construct another sanctuary, school, and press room, many members lived in mobile homes on the property. Together, it became known as Yahweh Village. While his congregation was growing, rumors about Israel's infidelity began surfacing, threatening his and the church's image. According to Kay Hawkins' book, The House of Yahweh, My Side of the Story, when Kay confronted him about this, he said only, I will never sin. He never denied the accusations outright. Israel may have arrogantly thought he was protected and could do no wrong because of the prophecy that he believed outlined his destiny. In addition to having affairs, Israel's inferiority complex became more apparent to those around him. He took on all the important tasks on the property himself and refused to delegate any power. He seemed to fear anyone else's ability to do a better job than him. So, without sound leadership, the House of Yahweh became disorganized. Although the church had acquired more land and followers, their golden age was quickly coming to an end. Coming up, a scandal tears the house of Yahweh apart. Now back to the story. By 1990, 56-year-old Israel Hawkins appeared to be the picture of success. He'd just acquired 44 acres of land for his church, the house of Yahweh. He'd found an international audience and he drew hundreds of members to his group. 
But that didn't last. Israel's power went to his head and his corruption grew worse. Soon after moving onto the 44 acres, his church began deteriorating. And when things got bad, they got bad fast. In the spring of 1990, people driving by the property noticed some members living in squalor. A group of mentally disabled people who were a part of the church lived in dilapidated mobile homes. That got the attention of the local press. When reporters spoke to Israel about the situation, he came across as defiant, arrogant, and condescending. His wife, 42-year-old Kay Hawkins, tried telling him that the poor conditions made them look bad, but Israel ignored her. No one had left the congregation over the matter, so he didn't think it was a big deal. Israel just continued carrying on as usual. Until February 1991, when he got a call from his nephew, he told Israel that his older brother Jacob was on his deathbed with advanced pancreatic cancer. Israel rushed to be by his brother's side. He placed his hand on his brother's head and prayed for healing, but Jacob pushed him away. He didn't want anything to do with Israel. His son had called Israel against his wishes. Israel returned home a nervous wreck. As Jacob's condition grew worse, Israel drank peach brandy constantly to steady his nerves. But self-medication couldn't stop the inevitable. On March 22, 1991, Jacob passed away. Israel went to a service and allegedly laid on his body in the funeral home in an attempt to resurrect him. When that didn't work, he returned to Eula in despair. Kay then realized that Israel's pain wasn't caused by his brother's passing. Her husband was troubled because Jacob's death might ruin his ministry. When Israel first started his church, he proclaimed that God had made him and Jacob co-prophets and given them a divine job. With Jacob dead, they wouldn't be able to complete that world-changing mission, and Israel would be labeled a false teacher. Israel scrambled. The following Sunday, he'd need to appear before his congregation and announce that his brother had died. In the week leading up to his sermon, he contemplated two choices, come clean or continue lying. When Sunday arrived, he stood in front of his followers and told them the news. According to Kay's account, the room went quiet as people processed what it meant. Several people understood Israel had been wrong about God making him a prophet and left immediately. From the pulpit, Israel pivoted. He claimed that Jacob wasn't a prophet after all. Israel told his followers that he'd gained a better understanding of the scriptures. He retranslated the passage from the book of Isaiah that he'd used as a prophecy before and said that it now foretold that God would give Jacob a curse. The way Israel interpreted it, that curse was death, which meant that he was the only true prophet. It seems that the majority of the church, which numbered in the thousands at this point, accepted his explanation, and Israel salvaged his reputation. He didn't have to admit he was wrong or deny what he'd previously said, he just needed to tell a different story. This event had a snowball effect on his followers. Because they accepted Israel's first error, they accepted more of them. Soon, they no longer went to original scriptures for guidance. Instead, they looked to Israel and his translations of the scriptures, believing whatever he said. And anyone who didn't blindly follow his preaching was kicked out. But for all his control, he couldn't make everyone bend to his will. He was betrayed by someone closest to him. In May 1993, Kay received a phone call and heard a woman, who we'll call Shannon, crying. Kay says that between sobs, Shannon told her, I know you don't know it, but I'm Israel's wife. 
The floor dropped out from under Kay. She'd known that Shannon was Israel's longtime mistress, but she had tried to ignore his infidelities. Now, with the revelation of another marriage, she couldn't ignore it anymore. Kay hung up and drove to Israel's office. She stormed inside, unleashed her rage, and then went to Shannon's mobile home. When Shannon let her in, Kay noticed the living room had brand new furniture, which Israel most likely paid for with church money. Shannon explained that one of the elders had secretly married them. But before she could continue, Israel arrived. In front of Israel, Kay warned Shannon with strong words about Israel's deceitfulness. Then she stormed off and drove home crying. A few hours later, Israel called Kay. She begged him to end the affair because he was committing adultery. According to Kay's book, Israel then said he refused to be a dog on a chain. Kay pleaded that he repent for the sake of his integrity in the church, but he dismissed that as well. He said what he always said. He hadn't sinned. As fed up as Kay was with Israel, she didn't leave the relationship. As she writes in her book, I dropped into the blackest mental hole of pain and was on the verge of a mental breakdown. She continued to pray that Israel would come to his senses. To avoid any future problems with Kay, Israel adopted a new strategy. In July, he wrote a new interpretation of scripture about the law of multiple wives. He took several Old Testament verses out of context and claimed they proved adultery's validity in the church. Then Israel had an elder of the congregation deliver this news in a sermon. Ultimately, Israel pulled the same tactic he used when Jacob had died. To avoid a scandal and admitting he'd been a hypocrite when he preached about monogamous marriage, he twisted and reinterpreted the Bible to fit his own ends. Israel threatened to expel anyone who disagreed with his new teachings, but Kay openly opposed the new teachings. And that was a problem. Israel needed her to submit to him as well. One day, he had four elders and their wives come over to their trailer. They pressured Kay to admit she was wrong, but she denounced them. Based on his past behavior, we might think Israel would have attacked Kay for an outburst like that, but instead, he broke down sobbing. According to Dr. Yanya Lalich, a sociologist and cult expert, such unpredictable behavior is the norm for cult leaders. She said that they often act two-faced, so followers don't know if their leader will come in like a raging bull or as a sweet seducer. The point of this behavior, according to Lalich, is to keep followers on edge. In this case, Israel acted like a pathetic child, but he likely had one goal in mind, to maintain a power imbalance. That way, his followers would never guess what he'd do next. They would remain in fear. 45-year-old Kay had resolved to never live that way again. She separated from Israel and moved on to another farm property that they owned. She quietly stopped loving Israel years before, but couldn't bring herself to leave him. She didn't think she had many options, and she had to care for her children. But with her kids grown, she now had the chance for freedom. Still, Kay knew she couldn't just cut ties completely, and she needed to take action or Israel would continue to get away with all of his wrongdoing. In the spring of 1994, she hatched a plan. She went to one of her husband's offices on the 44-acre property and took piles of documents which proved Israel's corruption. Some of the most damning pieces of evidence were statements that showed he took around $350 every few days from the church for his personal use. She hoped if people saw how Israel used the church's money, they'd reconsider following him. She then hid the papers in storage and began working on a tell-all book. 
Shortly after, Israel discovered what she'd done, but he couldn't force her to hand the evidence over. It seems he didn't want to draw attention to the matter or cause her to do something even more drastic. Instead, he tried to trick her. He sent Kay letters saying he missed her and that he wanted to lovingly show her the error of her ways. But Kay wasn't fooled. For the first time in their marriage, she had the upper hand, and Israel was terrified. In May 1994, she received another letter from Israel and the elders saying that she was banned from the house of Yahweh. If she wanted to return, she would need to follow five rules which included fully submitting to Israel's authority and returning what she'd taken. She responded by refuting their accusations and told them she wasn't planning on coming back anyway. Israel continued sending her letters over the next few weeks, but they couldn't change Kay's mind. These efforts pushed her even further away. She got so fed up with everything that she filed for divorce on June 27, 1994. Ultimately, when Israel realized he couldn't keep Kay, he rejected her. On July 1st, Israel sent her one last letter informing her that she'd been excommunicated. But he wasn't done with her yet. In late July, Kay was ordered to make a full inventory of her farm to figure out how they should divide the estate. As she took stock of her property, she found a bugging device on her phone line and other listening equipment. She concluded that someone had trespassed on her property and planted the equipment so Israel could spy on her. But it didn't matter. When her divorce was finalized in December 1994, she never looked back. At the age of 46, she was finally free. And she got out just in time. Over the next few months, Israel continued seeking deeper into delusion. He subjected his congregation to increasingly more paranoid teachings about the end times and other matters. For example, he declared that Satan was a woman and was Yahweh's ex-wife, and that all Christian denominations were misguided and evil. These weren't just mindless ravings. They led to real consequences. Although Israel had lost the battle for Kay, he was far from finished fighting for power and control. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of Israel Hawkins. We'll discuss how we spread his ministry all over the world, the crimes he was implicated in, and how federal authorities finally brought him to justice. For more information on Israel Hawkins and the House of Yahweh, among the sources we used, we found Kay Hawkins' book, The House of Yahweh, My Side of the Story, very helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Cults was written by Rob Heckert, with writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cult stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. You aren't supposed to know about them. Unless they want you to. Powerful groups with their own very specific agendas. And if you find yourself on the inside, good luck getting out. Hi, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Join us every Tuesday for our new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. 
Whether it's doomsday predictions, deadly greed or world domination, each week we're exposing the beliefs and actions of the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.